3: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, and welcome to Dwell, a Circe Institute podcast for homeschool moms by homeschool moms. I'm Emily Hill, and joining me are Karen Kern and Renee Mathis. Hey, ladies. Hello again. Hey. Hey. So we're having this like super fun conversation until we have faces, and I'm not sure any of us know exactly what it means. And maybe that's the joy of community with others and talking about books. So I hope you're tracking with us um, and reading along with us as we read this really remarkable, well, I was gonna say novel, but Lewis himself says myth um, and how it relates to education, but that's a that's a broad world there. Um I've been in the world of education and teaching from the time I was fourteen. And somehow that's colored the way I read and think about the world. and even just reading a novel or book on philosophy or poetry, I, I just begin to make connections to teaching and human growth. And I'm sure you guys do that too, as homeschool moms and teachers, because really, every story is the story of an education or de-education, uneducation, I don't know, you might say as the opposite, that word itself, education, comes from a Latin word, educare, which simply means to draw up or lead out. And during our last conversation, we began talking about Till We Have Faces, a myth retold, gave a little basic overview of the story and the myth behind it. Thank you, Karen. And perhaps you'll agree with me that it's not the easiest tale to make sense of, but perhaps the purpose of a myth is not to make sense of it, but to just let it sit with you for a bit. So we're just going to let it sit with us for a bit as we share a conversation about some of the themes of the story and how we as moms and teachers can understand more deeply the journey of the soul that we're on with our children alongside them. So in our last conversation, we wrapped up talking about Oriwell, our protagonist here, and her encounter on the mountain of seeing something supernatural. And we'll just jump right in. Why why did Oriwell not want to believe what she saw. We're at the point in the story that um, Psyche has been, Psyche's been sacrificed. And we'll talk about that in a little bit too. Really powerful uh, imagery there. So Psyche has been sacrificed and uh, rescued from that. And now she lives with the God of the mountain, Eros. And she lives in this beautiful palace, but, in the meeting that Psyche and Ori will have with each other, Psyche points out like the beauty of this palace and the food that she's eating and the luxuries that she's living in, but Oriel can't see it. All she sees is just this wilderness around her and this stream and they're not drinking wine, they're just drinking water. And Psyche says, can't you see this? And she can't, except for, for one second, for like for one moment of time, she has this flash and, she's, and she sees it, but then it, go, it fades and she's not sure. And then she moves on in the story and she asks her teachers, Bardia and the fox, what, like, what, just, like, what happened? Is it real? And why was it so hard for her to believe what she saw? Why is the supernatural so hard for us moderns to embrace? That's a real question. Go for it,
1: <laughs> okay, I'll jump in um, from a teaching standpoint, I think one of the things that hampered or you all from seeing what was there was a result of her teaching of, of the way she had been taught. and so in that sense, it's kind of a cautionary tale for us as homeschool moms or um, as moms who perhaps you know gradually let our children um, you know be taught by other people as well and, and to understand that whoever is teaching us is going to have their own worldview, their own presuppositions, you know, whatever legs they're standing on philosophically. And if they come from a place where there is no such thing as the supernatural, it's all what's in front of us. It's all material. It's all what can be proven. That's the tack that they're going to take. And, and for someone educated like that, it would be very hard to admit that there is another possibility that there's another way there perhaps, um, So in that sense, Oriwal was indeed handicapped, I believe, from seeing because she didn't understand there was another possibility. Karen, anything to add on
3: there?
2: Well, I think that Psyche is in a place of love where she is experiencing a world that um, Oriol has no idea of and is partly jealous of that, but doesn't have the eyes the eyes to see it because she hasn't been given the gift to see it.
3: Um I don't know. I don't know if that if that makes sense at all. Um but it's almost like she doesn't want to see it.
2: Well she doesn't have I think she doesn't have the faith to see it. She she can't get into that other world and it's actually a picture almost of a physical place. Like it's she's Trying to see across the river, it, it, it's hard because it's it's being told as a myth, not as a one-to-one correlation where we can say this means this. And I don't I don't really know how to find the meaning in that though. It's it's almost like it just says to let it be that she can't see it because she can't see it. She doesn't have eyes yeah. to see it.
3: Yeah, and this is Lewis's commentary on our modern world too, in that we don't have eyes to see it. We don't have eyes to see the supernatural. And this is here. It's a little bit of a soapbox, but I'll get on it. Really? It's going to be a short soapbox. With this idea of the supernatural and education, particularly, and teaching of how we live in such a, a factual science, I won't believe it, I don't believe it unless I see it. And in many ways, we are a product of our own society. Like we are passing that on to our children in that, do we believe in miracles? Do we believe, and and small things like that, do we believe that supernatural things still happen? And maybe even from from a curriculum standpoint, this is why things like fairy tales and myths and parables, and Bible stories are so foundational in those younger years. Just so that a child has a framework, like the unexpected could happen. It does happen in the stories. It always happens. And honestly, that's why I am 100% behind my kids reading stories that have magic in them. Um, Magic is a our own human narrative of the supernatural, right? This is how we, that's our own creativity. That's as good as we can get. As humans, we come up with magic, but that is the supernatural. Like if magic can happen, surely something supernatural can happen. You know, if I can cast a spell and this happens, then maybe it is true that Jesus could turn the water into wine. Maybe it is true that he could divide up the loaves and fishes. And that's a true story and creating a framework in your own mind and your children's mind from the time they're a young, at a young age of I, fairy tales and myths do that. They said a framework for that. All right. Soapbox over. Mm. Read fairy tales to your kids. That's all I have to say on that. <laughs> um, Because the fight of modernity is actually a fight against the unseen. So that, let's move on here in the story a little bit, um, how she's wrestling with the unseen. She has her teachers in uh, Bardia and the Fox, but then it all falls apart, right? She ruins, in some ways she ruins everything. She tells Psyche to expose the God of the mountain and then it all just like goes south from there. And you see at this point, she, um, she becomes the queen and she takes on uh, this veil to cover her ugliness in some ways, but it's more than that. How did you see that? What is this? Like, why did she, why did she put on this veil? Like, Renee, what did you make of that?
1: Yeah, um, p- putting on her veil, I think in one sense is it shows us that, that along the way, as part of her journey, if you will, she needs to become less. She has been in the very beginning as she was younger, very strong character, very, you know, egotistical in a way. Um, we haven't talked about love yet, but, but her her understanding of love has been thwarted and twisted and she doesn't understand what it means to sacrifice. So maybe we could stop for a second before we talk about veils and talk about love for a minute. And, and the idea that one, one book you might want to read alongside till we have faces, if you haven't, is, is Lewis's book called The Four Loves, where he explores um, different aspects uh, and different characteristics of different kinds of love. And so, um, just real quickly, those four loves are, there's, there's affection, which you might think of, you, you know, in the good sense, it's warm, it's comforting, you might even think of it as motherly. On, the, da- on the, the reverse side, it, it can go a little haywire if it has a real need to be needed. It, it can kind of get possessive in that way, as you can imagine. There's friendship, which, as Lewis describes, is the least jealous of all the four loves. Um, because it really just cares. It, it, it's a, a relationship where you both care about the same things. You're interested in the same things. Um, and then there's eros, which is not... Um, erotic in our modern sense of the world or or even necessarily romantic but but it is a consuming love where giving and receiving the lines can become blurred as as two become one but on the flip side um it can be an all-consuming possessive desire which we would all agree is not a good thing and then the last kind of of the four loves is what you call charity and, and that's the kind that requires divine intervention. We can't do it on our own. We need God's help with this one. We need God's love acting through us and in us to truly be sacrificial, to truly desire what is best for the other person. And it's with charity that the other three kinds of love can actually reach their fullest and highest expression and potential. So when you look at Oriol's life, um, You know, did she have that warm motherly affection from her mother or father? No. She had the opposite from her caregiver, Bata, who was hard and and physically rough and and more of an enforcer than a a nursemaid. Um, She did experience, I think, that friendship with the fox. He taught her to be interested in the same things that he was interested in. Uh, Eros, um, Oriol's consuming, possessive love of Bardia as it was pointed out to her in the end. And and then finally, as she grows and matures and reaches the end of her life and becomes queen, I think we finally see charity start to take over in Orwell's life as she learns to sacrifice and to give herself for her people in a way that her father never did. Um, so she becomes the opposite of her father. He was a bad king. She's the good queen. Um, the veil, you know, how does that play into that? Um she wears the veil as she's learning to think less of herself but then in the end she takes the veil off and actually becomes one with her people in the sense that she walks around them and they don't even know it's her because they don't even recognize her anymore she's almost invisible so a lot of interesting contrast a lot a lot of growth on her part and it is interesting to kind of track that looking at, at her journey of, of learning to love and, and learning what it means to love rightly and to love well
3: so oh, did she love Psyche? You know how like brings that up so much of just like, but I love you so much. And I'm like, I'm doing this for you. This is all for you because of my great love. And like, how could anyone accuse me of not loving you?
2: I think that she thought she loved Psyche when she was young. I think she probably loved her because she was beautiful, because she was this uh, younger half-sister who also was motherless. Who she um a rule being such a strong person naturally was able to shelter her, to take care of her, to teach her. And she and she just I think she really thought she loved her, but at the end she says, um, never again will I call you mine, but all there is of me shall be yours. So she comes to the realization that she was, as she calls herself, a craver. So she realized that while well, she thought she loved her, she re- that wasn't actually love. That was that was a craving to fulfill a, her, one of her own needs, not sacrificial love.
3: And did she love Bardia? Then the same, mm. right? Yeah.
2: Not her according to Bardia's wife.
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That she consumed. Yeah, because she was like, that's
2: a terrible thing to be called a devourer, right? You devour to be told by Bardia's wife that she devoured him. That's that's a hard thing to recognize.
3: So, yeah, talk about this contrast you see here, though, of her saying she loves, and yet it clearly dates that she was just a consumer and that she was a devourer and she sees that then or is told that um, whether it's psyche or uh, bardia and yet her perspective of the spiritual world is that in this dark pagan sense that was that was the devourer that's what she thinks she thinks this like unget and that whole world is like the spiritual world is the devouring world. It took psyche away from me. Um it requires so much sacrifice. And like what is the what is the place of sacrifice in her journey of the soul? I don't know, Renee, maybe you can even talk that one note that you um notice with psyche and the tree.
1: Well, I mean, isn't that the way we all are? I mean, we all, you know, in our in our unsaved, sinful hearts, we want to blame somebody else, right? It's all the the God's fault, or it's this thing's fault, and um, we think we are perhaps loving rightly, and really we're just using people for our own ends. Which in the beginning of the book, that's all Oriol did. I mean, she she used Psyche. I think I think she genuinely wanted to love this little little sister. But she didn't know how, and without divine charity, without, without God's love working through her, she couldn't love her in a way other than to possess her and devour her. The same way with with Bardia, it was twisted. It was a a, a twisted kind of a romantic love being thwarted and not being able to be fulfilled, and um, and we saw the result of that that. You know, his wife, when his wife confronted her with, this was this was the husband you left me with. You know, you used him up. You got the best part of him and I got the gray, shriveled, shrinking, tired, aging, what was left at the end of the day. And I think that really shocked Orwell. I don't think she had considered that what she was doing would have that effect. Um, so, you know, in the sense of she, she, she didn't know how to love. But over the course of the story, the idea of sacrifice, um, we see Psyche as a type of Christ, right? They're having plagues and illnesses, and, and so Psyche is brought up to a mountain and tied to a tree. So, you know, that symbolism really kind of knocks us over the head. We know what that's going on, what's going on there, and she's going to die for the people. But by the end of the book... And, and yet, to go along with that, she doesn't die.
2: She gets... You know, know. she she gets taken away to a palace
3: yeah, and
2: that, true. that a world doesn't have eyes to see because it's, it's, you know, not one-to-one but it's a spiritual world where she is resurrected
1: Thank you, Sarah. too. Yeah, so then when Oriol becomes queen and takes over from her father and, and she becomes a, a good queen who literally spends herself, pours her life out for her people to the point where Oriol becomes less and the queen becomes more I think she's finally learning how, what it means to love in that charitable sense where it truly desires the best for the other without any thought for the self. And so at the end, when she's told, you are psyche, perhaps because she also has sacrificed for her people and given herself up.
3: But it seems that the, the beginning of that is this is her questioning, her accusation against the gods here. Um, And the taking on, I mean, the taking on of the veil is the covering of her face, right? So until we have faces, right? So she's covering her face and she's ugly. And that's her main motivation for covering her face is because she's ugly. And the truth is she is ugly. Like she, she, she's like, she's an ugly person. She's devouring and consuming and she's ugly and she does not have faith. And she doesn't believe in one thing or another, um, And there's something so powerful about that, that picture of her covering her face. And then the journey that sets her off on into, as you said, Renee, into learning to love and how long it takes her and how she's just bitter and angry. And she's like, fine, I'll do this because I have to, and I'll be the queen I have to be. But it's just like our own lives, just little by little, hour by hour, day by day. It's like our conversation on habits. It's the habits of our life um, are who we become. And then when she comes to this point at the end of book one, when she's just like, I'm so mad about this. And this is like the most unfair thing that has ever happened to a human. Here's my accusation. Um, Like, Do either of you have that passage at the end or either of you at that place at the end of book one I can find it. Either of you have it. I have it. Karen, you want to read that, sure. that last the last paragraph, but the line before the last paragraph. Yeah. Why must
2: holy places be dark places? I say, therefore, that there is no creature, toad, scorpion, or serpent, serpent so noxious to man as the gods. <laughs> Let them answer my charge if they can. It may well be that instead of answering, they'll strike me mad or leprous or turn me into a beast, bird or tree. But will not all the world then know and the gods will know it? The gods will know it knows that this is because they have no
3: answer. Why must holy places be dark places? Like This is how Mm -hmm. she comes to the end of book one that the gods have no answer. It's all their fault and they have no answer. Um, and then it just jumps into book two, which is her sacrifice, right? This is her becoming psyche. And you guys have older children and you've walked through the journey of life um, and Again, I'm going to quote Lewis's introduction and would love to hear your, your thoughts on this in light of like, God has no answer. In that first paragraph, he says, part of the reason he wrote this story is to address the havoc, which a vocation or even a faith works on a human life. And how fascinating he uses that word havoc, because we just think of that as like bad, like wreaks havoc. Like that actually is what faith does, it just like wreaks havoc on us because it's like against our nature. So like, what are your, like, even in your own, in your own journey and your own, we all have had an accusation against the gods in some ways. um, And even in mothering, things just don't always go as we wish they would. Mm. How has that havoc, which the vocation of motherhood and faith, how has that worked on your human life?
2: well my children are you know between the ages of 26 and 34 and hard things have happened in recent years even very hard things have happened and it's it's the hardest thing some of these things are the hardest things we've ever dealt with as parents and you think oh when they're adults you know they'll take care of themselves and they do <laughs> It's not that they don't. It's just that you never you never you just never stop loving them and suffering alongside. So I'm going to to answer that question. I'm going to use a line from Wendell Berry and Hannah Coulter. Um, There's a line that says, and we'll we'll live right on. And the reason that we'll live right on in the middle of hard, hard things is 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 because of our faith. And so when you can, you know, face the hard things or the, the suffering and know we'll live right on, not because it's going to be easier because it might get harder yet. Um, but it's, it's because, you know, we have, we have learned of eyes to see that God's not done with them yet, that it's their story, it's not my story, that, um, that our faith is real, that in the hard times when it's tested and it turns out to be real, um, there's joy in that even in the middle of the suffering.
1: Uh, I don't...
2: Yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question, but that's where my mind went.
1: Uh, And and where my mind goes with that too is I have five very imperfect children who were raised by two very imperfect parents. (laughs) So, um, you know, uh, we just... We just plod along step by step, and I really think the answer is in being thankful for where the Lord has brought us, um, where, the, where He's brought me and my children. Um, perfect places, no, but that's why we pray, and that's why we have faith that um, their stories aren't over any more than my story is over. And it is an opportunity to learn to give thanks and to be grateful every day um, for all he's done. At the same time, recognizing that, you know, in the words of Psalm 107, which is one of my favorites, you know, his, his steadfast love endures forever. And I would say that if you're a mom with children who may not all be in a place where you would like them to be. That psalm is beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of people rebelling against the Lord in all kinds of creative ways. <laughs> and, and yet God seeks them out and brings them home. And he seeks them and brings them home. And they return. And, um, and, and it, it's beautiful um, for, for, his wondrous, for his wondrous works. And as much as we try to run away, as much as we try to, to escape his steadfast love, um, he returns. And, and he is in the business of drawing people to himself and so um one time i heard a, a phrase that's a prayer god loves to answer and i believe that we pray for the souls of our children with faith that is a prayer god loves to answer so stay on your knees moms <laughs> it's it's where we all need to be um and so that's what i think of
3: and that is this story yeah maybe that's why i love this story it's a like you in- one of my very favorite novels of all times, because it is that story. It is the story of God will not let go. Mm -hmm. It's like, why did she not want to see him? He will show himself. It's like, you will see me. Um, And then after she has this, you know, part two is she's an old woman and she has this, um, vision, dream, experience. And it go. It, you know, it tracks with the myth of how she has to, she participates in the tasks of psyche, actually, in this almost like dreamlike state. And she encounters this uh, um, she goes into this court and there is the judge. And there's this, I, I'm just gonna read it to you because it's so beautiful and then we'll wrap up together. At the very end, she is reunited in this this ending journey, she's reunited with Psyche. And she says, if Psyche had not held me by the hand, I should have sunk down. She had brought me now to the very edge of the pool. The air was growing brighter and brighter about us as if something had set it on fire. Each breath I drew let into me new terror, joy, overpowering sweetness. I was pierced through and through with the arrows of it. I was being unmade. I was no one, but that's little to say, rather, Psyche herself was, in a manner, no one. I loved her, as I would once have thought it impossible to love, would have died any death for her, and yet it was not, not now, that she really, that she that really counted, or if she counted, and oh, gloriously she did, it was for another's sake, The earth and stars and sun, all that was or will be, existed for his sake. And he was coming. The most dreadful, the most beautiful, the only dread and beauty there is, was coming. The pillars on the far side of the pool flushed with his approach. I cast down my eyes. And then it ends. And I, do you, do you have the, Renee, do you have the end of the book right there? I do. Can you just read just the last that last
1: paragraph before, before the priest jumps in. Right, so she ends by saying, I ended my first book with the words, no answer. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Only words, words to be led out to battle against other words. Long did I hate you, long did I fear you, I might. And then it stops. and that's So when I read that, of I thought of... Or the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I thought of right away that how much that reminded me of the book of Job, where Job questions God and wants answers, and God says, I'm the answer. You know, where are you going to find the answers mm-hmm. to your question? You're not going to find them anywhere but in me. And here I am, and the answer to know me.
3: And that was her uh, that was her like true unveiling, right like the true unveiling is her recognition that, oh, this whole time, it was you, yeah, Karen, what were you going to say
2: and she well, she says I was being unmade, yeah. I was no one, and then I love that right in between what you read and what Renee read, they're standing there and they're looking it says. Two figures, reflections, their feet to Psyche's feet and mine. Stood head downward in the water. So they're looking together at the reflections and they see two Psyches, both of them beautiful. And it, it says, you also, our Psyche, came a great voice. And it was, you know, she she came face to face with the one who has the great voice and then she becomes beautiful because she's she comes face to face with him. And I don't know if her face became beautiful. Maybe that doesn't matter because what she saw though was beauty. She and Psyche both beautiful because of what she had encountered.
3: But that was her own face. And I think that's what just stuck with me from this book that the, the pilgrimage of the soul is the realization that I was created to reflect, I mean, the image of the pool, right? I am created to reflect the image of my maker. So when I am beautiful and I see my own face, that is my maker. That is the image bearer because I'm just a reflection of that. But
2: I have to be unmade to, I have to be unmade to be able to reflect that.
3: Yeah. So as we wrap up, how you talk about Till We Have Faces in two podcasts, I don't know, but we could just keep that conversation going. So if you, if you do have questions or your own comments, probably more your own comments than questions, let's be honest. If you have your own thoughts and comments on this, um, post it on the Facebook page, cause it would be really fun. Um, just, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. And some of the themes that we talked about of um, myth and longing and suffering and love and uh, this idea of reflecting the face of the father. Being the journey of the soul, please, please just share your your thoughts and ideas on that. And I just the, I want to wrap up by reading a Gerard Manley Hopkins poem that I know that you are very all, all very familiar with. I'm sure um, this is uh, just just like this is one of my favorite books. This is one of my favorite poems. So you'll see a theme of favorites here. And it's as kingfishers catch fire, um, talking about us reflecting the face of God here. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Deals out that being indoors each one dwells. Selves goes itself. Myself, it speaks and spells. Crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more. The just man justices. Keeps grace that keeps all his goings graces. Acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is. Christ. For Christ plays in ten thousand places. Lovely in limbs. And lovely in eyes, not his, to the father, through the features of men's faces. All right, we will leave you with that, and we look forward to hearing from you. All right, here's to home.
0: Hold up.